what power of hell, what scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand. Yesterday we were going through our doctrinal statement a little bit in our membership class. We had a membership class yesterday from 8.30 to 12.30. And I just invite any of you who are interested in becoming members to come along to those as you hear them announced. Well, one of the things that kind of came up as we were going through the doctrinal statement was this idea of perseverance of the saints. And what an amazing truth it is that once Christ has taken hold of us, we belong to him, we are his, that we'll never fall away, that we'll always be with him. As the new covenant tells us that he will put the fear of God in our hearts and we will never fall away from that. We will always trust him and fear him if we are truly Christians. So that is something to rejoice about this morning as we come together to worship the Lord. So who are we or what are we? I think this is the big question that we've been working through and trying to answer as we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. We, we came face to face with this question at the very beginning as we looked at the context for the Sermon on the Mount. And so at the most basic level, we learn as we read the context to this passage of Scripture and as we kind of enter into the very first verse, we learn that we are subjects of the King. Or, put a different way, we are citizens of his kingdom. There's a king. He has come. We, we learn through the first four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. We're told repeatedly in various ways that Jesus Christ is king. He's the descendant of David. He's the promised Messiah. He is the one who comes in fulfillment of all of those prophecies. And he is the king who sits and begins to instruct the subjects of his kingdom. We also hear Jesus in Matthew 4 preaching the message that John the Baptist had preached in preparation for Jesus' ministry. And he preached, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. So when we come to the question, who are we or what are we? The first most basic answer is we are citizens of this kingdom. We are subjects of this king. But as we enter into the Sermon on the Mount, specifically as we get into the Beatitudes, which begin in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 5, we're given a little bit more detail about who we are or what we are. Not just this general idea of citizens, but we're given some characteristics of our citizenship. Poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful, those who are pure in heart, peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But encompassing all of these attributes or all of these characteristics of citizens is this notion of being blessed. We are blessed ones. We are happy ones. We are those who have experienced, are experiencing, and will forever experience true happiness as it is rightly understood in relationship to the Creator, the one who made us, and the one who, who understands and who has created the very idea of happiness, the very experience of happiness. So we are blessed ones, we are happy ones, we are citizens of the King, citizens in the kingdom, and then we are all of these things that we read in the Beatitudes, all of these characteristics that we get from verses 3 to 12. 
And today we come to this question, who are we or what are we? But not just in this general way. We, we come to the question, who are we or what are we in so far as we relate to the world? In so far as we relate to engage with the society at large. So today's question is, what is our role in the world? How should we think about our function, our influence, and our impact in this world in which we find ourselves. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Christian Impact. And you go ahead and put those slides up, Will. Thank you. The Christian Impact. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. And in these verses, we meet these very familiar metaphors, these very familiar images of salt and light. And we have these on the poster over there. And, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, for you all to read and constantly be confronted with. I think this is one of the important, probably even most, most important passages that we find throughout all of the Sermon on the Mount. One that probably is, is most familiar to you. And I think one that we constantly need to be reminded of. Salt and light. So let's read Matthew 5, 13 to 16. If, you, if you're able to see it, you can, you can read it on the board over there. Or you can read it in your Bible. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. The Christian impact. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything <clears throat> except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray, ask for God's help, and that he will transform us this morning, even, even today. Our holy God, our heavenly Father, we love you, Lord, and we're so grateful. Those of us who belong to you, we're so grateful that you call us son or daughter, that we call you Abba, Daddy. We thank you, Father, today that you are this God to us, that you are a near, ever-present help in times of need, and that you are a rock and a fortress and a stronghold to those who trust in you, to those who hope not in themselves, not in the things of this world, not in circumstances or fleeting moments or other people, but who hope in you, the living God. We praise you, Father, that we are here today by no merit of our own, but by your grace, we're here today. And we ask that as we meet together today, that you will glorify yourself through us. We pray that you will use your word in the way that you promise throughout your word to use it every time. 
it is opened and every time it is taught, especially in the context of corporate worship where you, your people are gathered together and your word is shared, preached, and people, uh, all of us are hearing it and responding to it. God, would you do that work this morning as we engage with your word? Would you make our minds sharp and aware and keen to what you are doing? And would you help us, Father, to have soft not hard hearts, soft hearts that receive what we need to receive and that are open to conviction and to repentance. Father, would you forgive us for our sins? We know that we have many, many sins that we see and are aware of and battle and fight against and many that we cannot see because we cannot even begin to see the web of corruption that exists in our flesh. God, we're grateful that you have put to death our flesh, and you have raised us to newness of life through your Son. And we're grateful that today we are no longer living according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So be merciful to us today, we ask. And by your Spirit, would you apply your word to our hearts? Would you change us? And would you help us to love each other more and to desire your glory more than anything else that this world has to offer, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So the Christian impact, that's our topic for today. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. And there are four aspects to this text, or four things that I want you to see as we walk through it, as we work our way through these verses. The first is the point of impact. The second is the power of that impact. Then the precondition of the impact, and then finally, the purpose of the impact. So let's look at this first idea, the point of impact. So what exactly is it that we as Christians are impacting? You could ask this question, or you could answer this question in two ways. You could, you could come at it from where, a where perspective, and a what perspective. Two questions, where and what. So let's look at each of them. First, where. Where is the impact or influence of the Christian to be felt? And the answer that we get very clearly from this text is everywhere. Everywhere. Every place is a point of impact. There are two parallel statements here. We find one in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. And then the second, in verse 14, you are the light of the world. And what, so we're, we're meant to understand these two guiding metaphors as kind of parallels. They have a very similar meaning, and there's kind of a, an, an overall meaning to the entire passage. It has to do with our influence, our witness, our impact on the world. But you will notice at the end of these two verses, or at the end of these two sentences, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, that at the very end we get this, of the earth, of the world. In other words, Chris, the, the, the impact of the Christian, the effect, the influence of the Christian is to be universal in its scope. The impact point, the point of impact is everywhere. Uh, a couple of years ago, <clears throat> Jennifer and I started watching on Netflix this show called Life Below Zero. 
And I guess it has been on for a while, but basically there are various seasons of it. And one of the things that was, uh, that that show looked at, or the thing that that show looked at, was people who had moved up to the Arctic Circle and who were doing various work up there, uh, various kinds of work, or they just decided to go up there and get a cabin and start hunting and kind of living on their own or whatever. And one of the things I found interesting was that people would go up there and they would be alone for long stretches of time except for uh, someone would maybe fly in some supplies. Or they would go into a nearby town and they would get what they needed and then they would go back out to their lonely kind of uh, habitation out there in the middle of nowhere. And I would say this, even there, even there, those, those little tiny moments of human interaction that are dispersed throughout the year, even in a barren wasteland like that, where you're seeing so few people, even there we have the point of impact. It is everywhere. It is the whole earth. It is the whole world. So that's where. But now we have to ask the question, what? What are Christians hitting up against? It's not just where in terms of the scope. It's a universal scope. But it's also what? What is the point at which Christians come bearing down on the world? And the salt and the light, I think, give us the answer. First, the salt. Now, if you look at commentaries on this passage, you'll see that there are roughly 11 different functions for salt in the ancient world. You can go back and look at all of the different ways that salt was used. And so some interpreters come at this passage and say, well, there's not really any particular uh, use of salt in view. It's just a much more general understanding of it. And so salt is just generally regarded as beneficial or valuable for people. And that would be kind of one way of coming at the evidence that there's so many different uses of salt that to refer to salt in that context would just be sort of general benefit, general value, general usefulness of salt. But most interpreters interpret this to mean that salt in the ancient world was primarily used as a preservative. So salt would be taken and rubbed into meat and that meat would then be prevented from decay or putrefaction. That's a, that's a fun word to say. So decay or putrefaction would be stopped as you would rub this salt into the meat and it would act as a preservative. So that's salt. What about light? Light shines out into the darkness. That's a very basic image. So now let's put it all together. What do we have here? We have salt. We have light. What are we impacting when we go out into the world as Christians? We know that the where is everywhere. But what is the what? What are we hitting up against? What are we influencing? And the short answer is this. Decay and darkness. Everywhere we look. There is decay and there is darkness. So I think before we go any further, it's, it's important that we really get this implicit, implicit assessment of the world around us. You could read through this passage and miss that because it's implied. It's not something that's sort of explicitly stated. What's explicitly stated is what the Christian is to be salt and light. And then you go on and you begin to elaborate on that. But the implied, the underneath, what, what we find underneath is what the world actually is. If Christians are salt in the world, and if Christians are light in the world, the world itself is to be characterized 
by decay and by darkness. That is the Bible's assessment of the world in which we find ourselves even today. Even today. As we go out from this place, this is the world in which we live. So I think one kind of beginning application here is that as Christians, we constantly need an accurate assessment of the world in which we live. Constantly we need that. Because the world is always trying, as we see in in Romans 12, to push us into its mold. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The world is always trying to take us Christians and to push us into its mold. James talks about friendship with the world. John, in 1 John, talks about that the one who loves the world cannot love the Father. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. It's of the world. It is evil. We constantly, as Christians, need to be reminded of God's assessment of this world in which we live. I was reminded of this recently as I was looking at a news story on the, on the movie The Beauty and the Beast, or Beauty and the Beast, which, is, which actually was released this weekend. It may be something that you have, you're not aware of, but uh, this is something that, that the director, this, this film, this remake of the classic Disney cartoon version, and the director of this film has kind of openly and, and very, in a very celebratory way has said, look, in this, in this film we have included an exclusively gay moment. This is a, this is a movie that is directed towards children. This is a movie that children will go and watch and parents will thoughtlessly perhaps, I mean, and, and we, would, we would understand that. We would expect that. Take their kids to this film and sit through it and, and, and watch it and bam, right there. What is at the end called an exclusively gay moment, even by the director. This is what's happening all around us. It is subtle. It is a scheme of Satan, which we learn in Ephesians chapter 6. And it is even directed at our children. And even by Disney. So, we have a reminder there, even of the subtle power of the darkness and decay that exists in our world. And I think one of the ways that we easily fall prey to this is that we constantly inundate ourselves mindlessly even with various media, various TV shows or series or the things we read, the things we watch, the things we choose to look at that just create a kind of worldliness in us, a kind of desensitivity to all the things that, that are decaying in our world. And we watch these things, we take them in, we laugh at them, and some of them are not overtly bad, but what they do is they subtly and softly and quietly and in a very crafty way create a heart and a mind that cannot see the decay and the darkness. And that's at the beginning of all of this. You can't just read this passage and skip over this. There is no salt or light unless one sees the decay and the darkness. So it is into this decay and darkness that the Christian comes. And that leads to our second point, which is the power of the impact. We have already noted the general function of the salt and 
the light, preserving and shining. But I want to take a little more time to describe the tremendous effects that Christians have as salt and light. And I think the first thing that we can, can observe is that Jesus says here, you are the salt. You are the light. And here's what that means. Oh, and he also says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In other words, as, as the you is emphatic at the very beginning, what he's saying is you, you specifically, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He's telling this to a group of largely peasant people on a mountainside in Palestine around the Sea of Galilee and he's telling these people that they are the light of the whole world. They themselves are this salt. So here's what I want you to see. We are the means that God has chosen to impact and influence and change the world for good. We are the means not just a means. You have to get this Christian because it is so easy to think of ourselves as being powerless or not really having a function in the world, just going through life with a lack of intentionality. But what we need to understand is this. If not you, then who? If not you, then who? You are the chosen means by which God will impact this earth, this world for good. The salt, the light. So where there is decay and darkness, if not you, then who? And drawing from the idea of salt as a preservative, Leon Morris, a commentator, says that as, that as the salt of the earth, Christians are to be a moral antiseptic. Think about that idea. A moral antiseptic. This is to oppose corruption and evil wherever it may be found. In every nook and cranny of this world, wherever it may be found, it is to oppose it. It is to fight against the deteriorating effects of sin in the lives of human beings. In some, it is to be a check on the spread of decay that is going on all around us. Probably one of the most dramatic examples of this that most of us, I'm sure, are familiar with is William Wilberforce. It's kind of the first one, really, in some ways, that comes to mind when you begin to think about what it looks like to be salt and light in the world. William Wilberforce, that's not an easy name to say, was a Christian who in the late 1700s and early 1800s in England fought hard as a politician to end the slave trade and then subsequently to end slavery in the British Empire. This has been called by historians, late 1700s, early 1800s, this period of time, these events surrounding the abolition of the slave trade in Britain, the abolition of slavery. This has been called one of the turning events in the history of the world. This man and others, but this man in particular, had this burden on his heart to be salt, to be light in the world, and this was the result. Listen to this quote from him. refers to the beginning of his kind of political life. He says, so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the trade, speaking of the slave trade, did the trade's wickedness 
appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I from this time determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. That is what it looks like to be who we are in the world. To be salt and to be light. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this about that period in the history of Britain. Most competent historians are agreed in saying that what undoubtedly saved this country, speaking of England, from a revolution such as was experienced in France at the end of the 18th century was nothing but the evangelical revival. And here he's referring to the first great awakening that took place in the English-speaking world, especially in Britain and in America. The first great awakening. Names like John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. These are some of the names associated with this period of time. This was not because anything was done directly but because masses of individuals had become Christian and were living this better life and had this higher outlook. The whole political situation, he says, was affected. And the great acts of parliament, which were passed in the last century, speaking of the 19th century, were mostly due to the fact that there were such large numbers of individual Christians to be found in this land. But I want you to see this. This fight against the deteriorating effects of sin is not only waged in a, a big, politically significant, high-profile kind of way. I mean, we might be tempted to think that. That to be salt in the world, in the, on, on the earth, to be salt, the salt of the earth or the light of the world, to be that is to make sure that we gain for ourselves a position where we can actually enact change, where we can maybe get elected or maybe become leader of a company or, or do this or do that, some kind of high-profile position in which we have a certain level of influence over other people. And we can then begin to enact things and move things. And that is, in fact, one of the ways that the Lord has used Christians throughout history. But here's what I want you to see. <clears throat> Jesus is not saying this to a group of people who are going to go on and do that, who are going to go on and be that. What Jesus is saying, you are salt, you are light, is for every Christian, every day, in every human interaction. Just as salt is rubbed into the meat in order to keep it from deteriorating, from decaying. So too are we Christians here at Four Corners, even us here at Four Corners. We're going to leave this building. This church is not the building. We're the church. We're going to leave this building where we meet as the church. And we're going to go out into the world and be rubbed into the life of Noonan and the surrounding area. And as we are rubbed into this world, into this society, into the surrounding culture, we will be a preservative. We will be a, a stop on the moral decay that we see all around us. It's not about high-profile positions. It's not about getting elected. It's not about becoming famous or well-known or having influence over a large number of people. It is about being in Christ, in the world. So Christian, 
You are the salt of the earth. So what about light? As we think about the power of the impact, as we think about this powerful influence that Christians have, what about this light? In various places, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. We find this in John 8, for example. He says it again in John 12. We find it really throughout the Gospel of John, but we find it in other places as well, that Christ is the light, the true light, as we find at the beginning of John, that has come into the world. He is the light of life for men. He is the light of the world. And here he tells us, his followers, that we are the light of the world. But guess what? We haven't always been that. In fact, at one point in our lives, we were darkness. Not just in darkness, not just contributing to darkness. The Bible says clearly that we were darkness. That we were entirely corrupt. And we believe in this thing called total depravity. And it means that in all of ourselves, in every aspect of ourselves, in mind, in the way we think, the way we use our intellect, our reason, in our willing, what it is we want, in our feelings, in our emotions, in our desires, in our passions, and in how we express ourselves with our bodies, presenting our members, as Paul says in Romans 6, as instruments to unrighteousness, that in every respect, from top, to bottom, from the inside out, we were darkness and decaying. But Ephesians 5.8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's incredible. In Christ, who is the light of the world, through whom all things were made, we are light. We also read this in 1 Peter 2, 9. We were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And when we came to Titus and we looked in chapter 3 of the society around us, we were reminded of the humility that we must have. It is easy to look at the world and say, decaying darkness. And just be real high and mighty on ourselves and feel really good about the fact that we're not part of that decaying darkness. When in fact, uh, we still carry around our flesh and we still feel that decay. We still feel that darkness and experience that in our own lives. But here's my point. It's easy for us to become proud and to lose our humility. So we must be reminded that we too were once darkness. We too were once decaying. But God transferred us into the kingdom of his son, took us out of darkness, and put us into light. So what does light do? What does light do as it shines forth? We've talked about what salt does, and we've mentioned the fact that light shines out into darkness, which is obvious. But what specifically does light do? I want to just look at a few things here, several things. First, light exposes that which is bad. It exposes what is evil. There's a reason that most crimes take place at night. Kind of, you know, the image of the dark alleyway. You know, people can kind of creep and break the law and do, do bad things and not be seen. They're not visible. Their deeds are not visible. But you let sort of a car come into that alleyway and, and light it up with, with the headlights. Immediately, people begin to run all over the place because it's no longer dark. And what they are doing in the darkness is exposed by the light. So we know that light exposes what is bad. And we read this in Ephesians 5.13. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. 
And last week we referred to John 3.20 where Jesus says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. He's over here doing evil. There's light over there. There is no interest in that light. And in fact, the light is repulsive because what that individual is doing is done in darkness and it cannot be seen and he can continue to delight in his evil. That is what Jesus is saying about the way that light comes into darkness. It exposes evil. It exposes that which is harmful, that which is wicked, that which is contrary to nature, that which is contrary to the creator's intentions, that which is contrary to the love of God. It exposes it all. And second, a second thing that light does in addition to exposing what is bad is it reveals what is good. It shows you that which you need to be drawn to. It shows you that there is something there that is attractive and that you need. So we read in Ephesians 5, 9, that the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Where the light shines, there's goodness and righteousness and truth. Where Christ shines, that is what you see. It shows you what is bad, and it makes clear to you what is good. Thirdly, and you may not have considered this, it takes away the disguise of the enemy. Do you know that in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, it says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light? Have you ever encountered that before? It's one of the reasons that I brought up some of the things I did earlier about the subtleties of sin. Satan never comes in... Giving to you, showing to you sin in its awfulness and showing to you all the destructive force that it will have in your life. He works very, in a very crafty way. He works in very small, subtle ways and even works so as to make you think that what he is doing is good and right and true. He disguises himself as a messenger of light. That's what he did to Eve. He was enlightening her. He was helping her to see how things really were. Did God say, hold on a second. Let's talk about God's intentions here in this garden. That's exactly what he did with Eve. He disguised himself as an angel of light. And that is what he does in our lives as well. And what light does when it comes in is it, it puts a, a, a very bright beam on Satan. It puts a very bright beam on this liar, this deceiver, this author of darkness, and it shows him for exactly what he is. So he can no longer, as the light shines in, as Christ shines in, as we, the light of the world, shine in, Satan can no longer pretend to be light. Because as light shines in, you see light for what it really is, and you realize that's not light. That is darkness. That's deception. That is just a mask. It's a disguise as he disguises himself as an angel of light. Finally, it shows the way out of darkness. Light exposes what is bad. It reveals what is good. It unmasks the evil one, the deceiver, the one who disguises himself as light. And then finally, it shows the way out of darkness. Darkness. John 12, 35 to 36 says, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, 
lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. He stumbles. He falls in a pit. He cannot see. Jesus often described the Pharisees as the blind leading the blind. These, these supposed shepherds, these supposed leaders were just leading people into the same pit into which they were falling. So Jesus says the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Not only does the light come and say, look, this is evil and this is good, but it beckons, it beckons the one who sees to come to the light, to come further into the light, to come to God who is light, to come to Christ who is the light of the world. So Christian, you are a powerful, bright shining light that comes crashing into darkness. You are salt and you are light. You are exposing by your very life what is evil. You are revealing what is good. You are unmasking the deceiver and you are leading people by the hand to the risen Christ who is the light of the world. That is what we are to do. That is what we are to be as Christians. That is one of the first things that Jesus says. As he gives us this kingdom manifesto, as the Sermon on the Mount has been called. It's, it's kind of his overarching message. His, the kingdom message, the message of Jesus in a nutshell. Here you go. This is who you are as my followers. This is who you are as my disciples. And this is one of the first things that Jesus has to say. Philippians 2.15 says that in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, we shine as lights in the world. Do you believe that you live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation? And in that, do you see yourself as a light shining right into it, right in the midst of it? And I think that there is an incredible impact as Christians. We don't need to be elected to do this. There's an incredible impact that we as Christians can have in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplaces, if we begin to really meditate on what it is that Jesus is calling us to do every day as we live out the Beatitudes as salt and light in those various contexts, wherever we may find ourselves is a point of impact for this Christian life. And that brings us to our third point, which is the precondition of the impact. So we have the point of impact, the power of impact, and now the precondition of the impact. So we know that salt and light are powerful. Salt is powerful enough to prevent even a piece of meat from decaying, which you leave a piece of meat out for just a little bit of time and it starts to smell awful. It's a powerful effect that this salt rubbed into the meat has. Light shining into darkness. We know how much just a tiny bit of light, just a little flicker of light. If you've ever lost power and you've had to break out the candles and start lighting those around the house, you know that it really doesn't take very many candles to light up a room, to light up a, a, a very large space. This is the powerful effect or the powerful impact of the light. So we've discussed how the salt and the light are powerful, but they are only powerful insofar as they function as they are naturally supposed to. They must be salt. They must be light. 
And what I love about this passage is that it doesn't tell us that we as Christians need to go and add some quality to ourselves. You know, as Christians, sometimes I think we get into a habit of thinking, okay, well, I need to, need to, I need to add this thing and then I will be living for the Lord. I need to add this particular characteristic or this, this feature or I need to kind of go out and, and do this extra thing and then I'll have the moral equipment to be salt and light in the world. That's not the message that we find here at all. Instead, what we are hearing from Jesus is this, be who you are. <laughs> it's that simple. Be who you are. And I don't mean that in the worldly sense. Express yourself and fulfill yourself. Find who you are and then just let everybody know about it. I mean in the Christian sense of once you have found Christ and Christ is in you and you are the very light of the world, be that. Be salt. It's not about going out and doing something new. It is about being who you were crafted, regenerated, remade to be. We are creations of God, recreations of God, and we are to be who we were made to be. It's that simple. Jesus suggests here that salt can become contaminated and lose its effectiveness and through that become useless. So look at verse 13 in your Bibles. Verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but... If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, it is true that salt or sodium chloride is a very stable compound and it cannot actually lose its saltiness. Salt does not lose its saltiness. But it can nevertheless become contaminated. And in the ancient world, what would oftentimes happen is salt would be mixed with other minerals. And the salt would be so mixed, it would become so mixed with other minerals that it would become useless as salt. The salt would no longer function as salt, and this was to simply be thrown out. And when we get this imagery here of being thrown out and trampled under people's feet, it's another way of saying that this salt would just simply be thrown out as useless, thrown out into the street, which is where people used to just throw junk. It was uh, very common in the ancient world, whether it was that or trash or whatever or other things. You just throw them out into the street. And this is what Jesus has in view here. This salt is just being thrown out. And you don't throw anything into the street. You don't just throw it out uh, in the trash unless it has no use. Unless it is worthless. Unless it no longer does what it was intended to do. Unless it no longer functions as it is supposed to. Becomes contaminated or adulterated and useless. And so how do we understand this as Christians? I mean, when do we become this way? And I think the way to think about it is when we lose our distinctiveness, and I even want to say it this way, when we lose our strangeness. And here's what I mean. We as Christians um, are not called to be weird, awkward people. <laughs> We're not. <laughs> We're not called to be that. We're not supposed to be uh, just Weird folks, you know, that, that's, that's, not, that's not the way of it. For, you know, our own idiosync, in our own idiosyncrasies and kind of be eccentric type of people and awkward around others and so on. That's not, that's not what this is talking about. 
This is talking about us being distinct and strangers in the world. And as strangers in the world, we will inevitably be strange to the world. So here's the thing. If you are so conscientious about not being looked at as strange or weird as Christian, you're just trying so much to blend into the world, drop a little bit of Jesus in there every once in a while. That's not what we are to be as salt and light. We are to be distinctive so that we can actually function as something that comes up against the decay, as something that comes up against the darkness. So our distinctiveness means that we have not become contaminated with the world. And just as salt can become useless through being contaminated, so too can the light become useless when it is hidden away. So look at verses 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. A lamp in a home, in this time, the people that Jesus is speaking to, a lamp would have been a shallow bowl of oil with a wick in it. And this would have been set on a stable, fixed place somewhere in the house so that it would be able to light up the room or light up the house. A lot of houses back then were just one room. And so it would just light up the entire house by lighting up the entire room. And the basket that is mentioned here is a basket that, a, that would have been used for measuring grain, either made out of like an earthenware or just a basket, an actual weaved basket. And Jesus is referring here to that basket being placed over that lamp. And what Jesus is giving us is an absurd image. It is meant to be ridiculous. We are meant to read it and go, hold on a second. That doesn't make any sense. A basket over a light. Lighting a lamp only to hide it under something. I mean, when was the last time that you went into a room, turned on a lamp, and then put a blanket over it? I mean, you've never done that. I hope, unless you're building, building a fort for your kids and then maybe the light's already on. But you don't do that. Nobody does that. You light a lamp so that it will function as a lamp. The whole reason for the lamp's existence is to give light. It, it has no other function. It has no other purpose. So I think there are a few applications that we can make to, uh, to ourselves as we consider this idea of being light and not losing our impact. The first one is that persecution can tempt us to hide our light. Remember the passage that we just looked at last week. We looked at the end of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12, and Jesus was making the point very clear to his disciples that if you belong to him, if you are one of his disciples, you will be persecuted. It is just part of it. Everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul says, will be persecuted. And so what happens in the world is we go out and we're, we're Christians and we're fired up about it and we're excited about it and then we begin to get persecution. And so this doesn't even happen consciously, but subconsciously we begin to sort of hide our light a little bit. Let me tuck this thing away. I don't really like that. I don't really like being reviled. 
as we looked at last week. I don't really like being persecuted or pursued. I don't really like being slandered behind my back. I don't like it when everyone is laughing at me at work because I'm the silly Christian. That doesn't make me feel very good. It doesn't make me very happy. So I got an idea. And you don't say this maybe even. Maybe you do. But you just kind of subtly begin to scale back and you begin to put a blanket over that lamp, which is your Christian life. This is easy to do. And then we cease to be witnesses. And it's easy, too, to to do this because there's this mindset out there that we don't really share the gospel verbally, that we just really live good lives. And what that translates into is, be nice and they'll see Jesus. No! That's, That's ridiculous. Be nice and they'll see Jesus. There are plenty of people in the world who are nice who don't know Jesus. It's not about be nice and they'll see Jesus. It is about manifesting all of the multifaceted character of Jesus in word and deed, in every moment, in every interaction. And that requires that we live this out openly and not conceal it. So persecution, I think, can tempt us to do that. Another thing that may prevent us from being this open, visible light that people can see is a kind of private spirituality. And I think we kind of fall into this easily because we live in a time where there's a proliferation of devotionals. And what I mean by that is that there is a heavy, 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 heavy emphasis on doing your devotional and your private, quiet time with the Lord. Now, hear me loudly. That is essential to the Christian life. You must spend private time in prayer with the Lord, reading his word, meditating on his word. It is essential. It was essential even in the life of Jesus. But here's where we can go wrong. We begin to exhaust the meaning of Christianity. We begin to exhaust the meaning of the Christian life in this image of private prayer time. This is one of the things that we're talking about in, uh, in our men's theology, the gospel at work. And it's this theme that sometimes we can go to work and live work as something other than our Christian life. We may get up in the morning, read our Bible, kind of read another book, listen to podcasts on the way to work. Then we kind of step out of the Christian life. We go to work, kind of just mull through it. You know I mean? It's just, it's work, it's a job. And then we get off work and we step back into our Christian life and we turn, you know, our radio on, we turn podcasts on, we listen to Christian music or whatever else. And then we're doing the Christian thing again. And that's, that's, that's totally wrong. That's a totally wrong way to view the Christian life. We are always living out this Christian life. And I think the reason we think that way is because the Christian life has been so reduced to private spirituality. So reduced to one's private time with Christ. Essential, but it doesn't exhaust our understanding of the Christian life. We are to be salt in the world, salt and light out there. Not so consumed in here that we forget who we are to be to those out there. And I think a third way that we can become concealed, we find in Romans 13, 12. And this is where we fail to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. I want you to think about this. What hidden sins are in your life? What are things going on in your life that nobody knows about, perhaps? Things that maybe your spouse doesn't even know about. When we fail to cast off the works of darkness, we fail to function as light out in the world and be who we were called by our king to be. 
Our king says, go and be light in the world. And when we let darkness inside of ourselves in such a way that we become so contaminated with it, so filled with it, we then cease to be any kind of light to those who are in darkness who desperately need the light. And so what Paul says there is cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So, Christian, if you are to have an impact on the world, you must not be contaminated or concealed. You must fight every impulse to be contaminated and to be concealed. But why? As we finish this morning, why? Why? Why are we to have an impact on the world to begin with? What's the purpose of all of this that we've been talking about? And that leads to the purpose of the impact, which is our final point this morning as we close up. In light of the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation, you will see a lot of conferences that will have that the Reformation and kind of the Reformation doctrines as as kind of the central uh, themes of the conference. And you'll probably see a lot of other things uh, online or a lot of literature that's being disseminated on account of the 500th year anniversary of Martin Luther's posting of the 95 Theses. In the beginning, really, what sparked the Protestant Reformation. And one of the things that we are celebrating as we celebrate the Protestant Reformation are the five solas of the Reformation. And by that, I mean sola fide, faith alone. The Reformers taught that we are saved, we are justified by faith alone. This was particularly important to Martin Luther. As he was attacking the practices of the Roman Catholic Church, particularly the idea of indulgences that, that you could, the church could sell to people something that would, would get others out of hell, would get themselves out of hell or from purgatory or whatever, and they would then be able to go to heaven or they would have less time to burn off in purgatory. And to that, the response was sola fide, faith alone saves us. Sola Scriptura, not the tradition of the church, but Scripture alone as the rule for the Christian. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Everything goes back to Christ. He's at the center of it all. Not all of these other things. Christ is the center of the Christian faith. Sola gratia, grace alone. Not the merit of man, but the grace of God. The unmerited, free gift of God that we do not earn. That's central to the Christian gospel, as we saw in Titus. And then, sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. What is the chief end of man? The subsequent Westminster Confession would ask, or the catechism, what is the the chief end of man? That we would glorify God and enjoy him forever. The glory of God is the end of everything. And that's exactly what we find in verse 16. That all of this preserving and shining out in the world is that God might be glorified. Look at the end of verse 16. So that, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is not for our glory. We'll go on to meet the Pharisees And we will see that they go out and they make these elaborate prayers. (laughs) You imagine someone standing in downtown Noonan just being going, getting out there, getting all set up, you know, and then starting their prayer. 
right there in front of everybody. And then everybody walks by and goes, oh, I wish I was that holy. Those guys are so good and so righteous and so holy. We'll go on to meet those folks, those folks who pray in public to be seen by other men and who give good things to to people to help charitable gifts, to be seen by men who fast and beat themselves up really bad, you know, so they look, oh, I'm just so hungry. I've been fasting. It's been terrible to be seen by men, unrighteous, evil. Here, we want our works to be seen by men who, those who belong to Jesus, Why? Not so we can be celebrated as good or righteous or as great people, but as those who are giving glory to our Father in heaven. What matters is our motivation. I think you could go on to that passage, which we'll come to later, those passages which we'll come to later in the Sermon on the Mount, and think that you need to hide all of your good deeds. Well, I I can't hide, I, 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 can't, I don't want anybody to think I, I'm doing this for myself. And, and you know, I, I want to make sure because I know my heart and I can, I can do it so that I'm, I can be praised. Uh, so I'm just going to hide away all my good deeds. I'm not going to let anyone see anything I do. And that's contrary to what we see here. We're told here that we are to let those things, that people may see them. We are to let them be seen. Perce- people can perceive them. They're discernible so that people will give glory to our Father in heaven. This is about motivation. It's all about motivation. Last week we saw that Christians can expect to be persecuted by the world, as I said before. The world, by and large, will not receive us or embrace us, but some will. Some will. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've been out in your workplace or you've been in your family and you've been laboring as a Christian in prayer for people you work with or people, loved ones that you have, and you're living out your Christian life, and you have seen the grace of God come to that person. You've seen people come to faith in Christ and begin to give glory to God in heaven because they saw God's glory through your good works, and they turned from their sin, from their darkness, from their decay, and they began to give glory to your Father who is in heaven, and that he has now become their father. As they see the character of Christ worked out in us. This is our living and speaking, pointing everyone to the life of Christ that is found in the gospel. The one who died for us, who rose again, and who dwells within us by the Holy Spirit. His life being lived out through us. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, is what Paul said. And as people see Christ's glory, not my glory or your glory, they see Christ's glory. They are drawn to him as we were. When we were in darkness, they are drawn to him and they reach up in praise with new hearts and they begin to give glory to God in heaven It is exactly what we find in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16, where it says, listen to these words closely. There are two kinds of hearers. There are two kinds of people who see our lives, and there are two kinds of responses. He says this, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one those who are perishing, a fragrance from death to death. Remember last week we talked about how our very lives indict the world, condemn the world in their sin. They will hate us. 
They will persecute us as is going on right now all over the world. A fragrance from death to death. But to the other, a fragrance from life to life. There are people in your workplace, people in your family, whom God is pursuing to save them. And he wants to use you. He wants to use you in their lives to show them darkness, to reveal to them light, to strip the mask off of Satan and show him for who he is in all of his wickedness and to then lead that person by the hand to the Christ who can save them, the only Savior, the only answer for all of their needs, for all of their trials and their woes is Christ. And he wants us to be the means by which he does this. The truth is we don't know who will persecute us and we do not know who will turn to worship the living God. But we know both will happen. Both will happen. Regardless, let us go out into a decaying and dark world, even today, preserving and shining brightly for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that we, small, insignificant people that we are, are your light in the world, God. What, a, what an amazing idea. What an amazing idea that we can't even fathom one day when we're with you and there is no sun because your glory enlightens everything. And we see the myriad and myriad of angels who do not even look at you because with wings they hide their eyes and with wings they hide their feet and they cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God, then we will know. Then we will know what a privilege it is to be your lights in the world. Would, would we know it now, God? Would we know it now? Not just then, when we, are, when we are enveloped by glory and when we are living forever in your presence, in the presence of angels and men made holy by your Son. Would we see that now by faith? Though we do not see him, we love him. Would we love him now? Would we believe now? Would we live now as though heaven were already here? Because in fact it is. God, would you grant us the grace that we need in order to be salt in this corrupt, decaying, putrefying world? And God, would you help us to be light? to show evil where it is and to lead people by the hand to that which is true and right and good. Help us not be private Christians, just tucked away, living out our Christian life in isolation from the world, but help us to be engaged with people and all of this for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.